0: chapter 4, 13 through 18. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. The scripture passage is up on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would love it if you would pull one out and follow along with us. There are also now, as we mentioned last week, Bibles in all of the seat baskets, and so if you don't have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull one of those out. And there's some, something about having a physical Bible and have, with a little weight to it and holding it open and reading, uh, and we would encourage you to follow along. With us, If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of and the honoring of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him, and to be born of a virgin. Grant that we, who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit, including a fresh experience of renewal through the preached word at this very moment. We pray that this would be the case by the power of the Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you in the same spirit the honor and glory now and forever amen you may be seated for this advent season we are looking for joy by means of a biblical and four week messianic exploration of various promises given in Scripture for different kinds of people. Sinful people, anxious people, waiting people last week, and now finally this week, we're looking at an Advent promise for a hopeless people. And we've seen so far that the pathway to Advent joy is totally counterintuitive. It's very different than the pathways that commercialized And even pseudo-Christian takes on the Christmas season put on offer. For example, if you will recall week one, we saw that Advent joy is actually found in prioritizing habits of confession and repentance that we might remember the bitterness of our sin and more fully enjoy the sweetness of Christ Jesus in forgiveness. Good luck putting that on your annual Christmas card. Merry Christmas to all of you sinners, love, your sinful family and neighbors. And now this morning, we encounter what we might call kind of another surprising float along the route of this unconventional holiday parade. Joy is found in many respects by looking away from the now and beholding what is to come. Conventional Advent advice often has a lot to do with reframing the way we think about our present circumstances. Have you noticed this? You know, remember, Christmas, it's not about the gifts and the lights. It's about the people. It's about laughing together Around the cozy fire, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, a Christian radio station in our area has been promoting this kind of sentiment in pre recorded interludes between songs. It goes something like, you know, this Christmas season, make sure to cherish the voices of your children or your grandchildren as they echo through the halls of your home. But biblical Advent advice has far more to do with pointing us forward, and in doing so, redirecting our gazes away from ourselves. And when you think about it, isn't this a far more legitimate, and there I say, hopeful way of ministering to hopeless people? Because I mean, and th- this is, listen, this is a wonderful radio station, but whenever I hear that radio entry, that I cannot help but think, What about the people without people? What about the people without people? Those who are despairing on account of loneliness, related to family fractures, friendlessness, infertility, death. What about the people who probably won't hear much laughter in their halls this month? Those who might be weeping instead. And such are some of us feeling very hopeless indeed, or something close to it. In fact, just yesterday I was texting with a member of our church family who's in the midst of some very difficult family circumstances, and at one point he texted me, So far it's been a very unmerry Christmas. What about people like that? Relational heartache, it, it's not the only thing that contributes to feelings of hopelessness, but I gotta say, that the relational stuff tends to consistently land on the top of our lists, which is unsurprising given our relational design as we image the God who created us. Which brings us this morning to a passage that pointed hopeless people forward nearly 2,000 years ago in a very relational, familial way. And in doing so, it gives us strong footing for Advent joy that thankfully lives outside of our present circumstances. Praise God. So two exhortations as we consider this passage together. Number one, church, one day we'll meet the Lord together. And then number two, so encourage one another. One day we'll meet the Lord together. So encourage one another with these words. First Exhortation Church, did you know that one day we'll meet the Lord together? If you're a guest this morning with us, and we're really glad you're here if that's the case, our church is in the middle of a series through the book of 1 Corinthians, a series that we paused for the Advent season, but will resume kind of at the midpoint of the month of January. While the Apostle Paul was originally ministering in the city of Corinth, establishing the church to which he would later write several letters, including the book of 1 Corinthians, his mentee Timothy visited him and gave him an update concerning the health of the church at Thessalonica. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, you can read all about Paul's fruitful, yet absolutely chaotic ministry in Thessalonica, which at the time was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. He preached in the synagogue and both Jews and Gentiles became Christians, a spectacular result on multiple layers. However, some very influential people who opposed Paul, they stirred up a riot, and those rioters, described in Acts chapter 17, verse 5, as, as wicked men of the rabble, those rioters attacked the house of Paul's host, Jason. They tried to bring Jason's household before the crowd, probably not to give them hugs, but they could only find Jason, so they seized Jason and a few random other Christians who happened to be in the area and brought them before the local authorities, accusing them of acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So here's the thing. Sovereign rulers, past, present, and future, really do not like to hear about perceived challenges to their authority. It was true then. It is true today. So for these rioters, this accusation was their best shot at getting Christian converts in big trouble and also discouraging would-be converts from moving forward with their plan. And since this is the Advent season... Here I'm reminded of King Herod, 45 to 50 years before Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, who upon hearing from some wise men about the recently born king of the Jews, killed all of the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, in an attempt to eliminate Jesus and the perceived threat to Herod's authority. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 2. And you know, before we say, Caesar, can you, can you believe that guy? Or Herod, you know, can you believe that guy? Before we say that, can we pause for a minute? Listen, I hope that none of us feel any sort of kinship with the wicked men of the rabble, let alone Caesar or Herod. But remember that when we sin, as we talked about in our week one Advent message, and we all sin, see Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 5, and so forth, what we're doing is that we're putting ourselves on the God seat. Or here's another way to put it. When we sin, we are doing away with God either by marginalizing him, you know, treating him as a, a buddy or maybe a glorified genie that you consult when you're in trouble, or by disbelieving in Him entirely. Why? Because we kind of like being king, don't we? We kind of like being in charge, calling our own shots, believing that we know better than God. Which is why Paul explained and proved in the Thessalonian synagogue that, and this is Acts chapter 17, verse 3, that it was, check out the weight of this word, NECESSARY. For the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. How devastating of a word is that? It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Necessary on account of our sin that Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, might save his people. Paul proclaimed this, and some repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. But then, on account of the rioting, Paul and his ministry buddy Silas made an abrupt and very hasty departure from Thessalonica, leaving by night to make their way to Berea. And perhaps on account of this abruptness, maybe, you know, Paul's teaching ministry in Thessalonica wasn't as thorough as he would have hoped, the Thessalonians didn't fully understand the particulars of Christ's return, his second coming, and what that all meant for those who had died. Or maybe Paul truly did a really bang-up job explaining everything, but the Thessalonians were having a difficult time believing what they had been taught in the wake of the deaths of people they really loved. Sometimes, the Bible lessons you learn in seasons of relative Peace become a bit wobbly when the war reaches our shores. And this fog eventually catalyzed some serious anxiety concerning the fate of Christians who had died before Jesus' second coming. With those who had fallen asleep, as in died, find themselves in a sort of existential no-man's land until Christ's return. And would they get to revel in the wonder of Christ's return when it occurred, or would they be resurrected after that moment and basically miss out on the party? Or even worse, it's actually hard to tell which one of these concerns was most prominent in their day. Would those who had fallen asleep miss the boat entirely when Jesus returned to gather his people and bring them into the presence of the Lord? Imagine how hopeless you would feel and how you would grieve if you were inclined to believe that people you desperately love who had put their faith in Jesus and then lived in obedience to him at significant cost to themselves, given the cultural circumstances, and then died, possibly on account of or at least in the midst of persecution. Imagine the hopelessness of believing those people we're somehow going to miss out on the full glory of Jesus' return and maybe even miss out on eternal life with Him entirely because of a matter of timing. My wife and I are above average fans of the Starlink satellites, which get launched into orbit in batches, and then they form these really sweet, wavy, Glowing lines in the sky. Kids, you would love this. Go see this one day. Ask your parents. They form these wavy, glowing lights in the sky that you can see if you're outside at the right time. And you can make sure that you're outside at the right time by typing your zip code into the online Starlink tracker. Above average fans, as in my wife got me a shirt for my birthday that has a Starlink satellite line on it, and I wear it regularly. So when we miss a particular Starlink arrival because we got distracted, even though we typed our zip code into the tracker and made a Google Calendar alert for the appropriate time, when we miss it, we get upset. Dare I say, a little bit hopeless because we missed our chance, and they don't just come around all the time. or way, way more seriously. The day before my father was killed, the two of us were supposed to meet up for a bit at the Orlando airport because we had flights coming in at the same time. But when I arrived, I got a text from my dad saying that his flight was delayed, suggesting that I should probably just head home to Gainesville since it was already pretty late, and so I did, and then he died the next day. I missed his arrival, or he missed mine, however you want to think about it. And I gotta tell you, it felt pretty confusing and hopeless, it still feels that way. The agony that the Thessalonians were experiencing was on a level even beyond all of this, given their theological confusion. And I really want us to feel that this morning. So Timothy, who had made a check-in visit with the Thessalonians in Paul's absence, he made sure to tell Paul about all of their confusion and their hopelessness when he met up with him in Corinth, which brings us to Paul's response to those concerns in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18, one of my favorite passages in scripture and maybe the warmest pastoral exhortation you will find in any of Paul's letters. with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The Thessalonians, verse 13. They were grieving like those who have no hope. In a sense, this was no more than a a correctable information problem. But on the other hand, we can tell that the Thessalonians had miles to go as far as truly understanding and delighting in the love of God. Do you see this? One of the things that I did as a kid, I know some of you aren't, aren't like me, you're way more advanced and mature, but one of the things that I... I think I did as a kid, and certainly um, people in our family sometimes do, is that you request to go use the bathroom as soon as you get buckled into your car seats, like immediately after your parent buckles the last door and closes it, buckles your seat and closes the door. And then... One of our kids used to get kind of emotional when this occurred, when they had to go use a bathroom, and then they had to, you know, they would go get out of the car, and then they would run in the door. Not because she was inconveniencing us, but because she was concerned, as it turns out, upon exiting the vehicle to use the bathroom, that we might just decide to leave without her while she's away. <laughs> Why this concern? Why? Because she didn't fully understand that once you're in the family, you are in the family. And you receive all of the benefits afforded to you therein. And she didn't fully understand the heart of her parents and the magnitude of our love for her. That we are permanently and unconditionally committed to providing for her and guiding her and protecting her. the Thessalonian believers were likewise still in process concerning their understanding of the heart of God. Of course, their heavenly Father wasn't going to roll down the driveway without them. Because once you're in the family, you're in the family. Oh, you died before my son you know, descended from heaven with the voice of an archangel. Awful timing, but as the saying goes, you know, win some, lose some. No! God loves His people permanently. And He loves them unconditionally. And so they will fully enjoy Christ's return regardless of when they die. And they will be with Him forever, worshiping Him and delighting with Him. Nobody will miss out. So Paul corrected their theology not just for the sake of better head knowledge, but for the sake of consoling them and helping them better understand the heart of their God. And to do this, he pointed them forward. He pointed them forward. Thessalonians, when Jesus returns, it's going to be something like a family reunion at the most wonderful wedding celebration you've ever attended. That's what it's going to be like. Jesus will, verse 14, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Which, by the way, suggests that the the souls of those who have died before his return have been with Jesus all along, even though they haven't yet received their resurrection bodies. And then, verse 16, the dead in Christ, those who turn to Jesus in faith and, and put their hope in him, will rise and be with the Lord first. They will receive their resurrection bodies. And then those still alive at the time of Christ's return will receive their resurrection bodies, verse 17, and then the entire family of God will be together. And then we will dance together at what Revelation chapter 19 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Did you know that? Since we're talking a lot about kids this morning, recently my kids got to attend a wedding with a few of the other kids here, actually, as it turns out. And honestly, my kids, they acted like it was the highlight of their young lives thus far. They danced the night away. Well, at least they they danced the early evening away. You know how it is. And there's a picture from that night of my youngest daughter in a, a little red dress twisting to the side, smiling broadly, hair just flying all around. It is such a wonderful, joyful picture. Of course, part of the reason I think that is because my daughter is in the picture and I love her and my other two children so very much. I'm very biased, I have to say. But here's the other reason why it's wonderful, and this is really important. In the background of this picture, you can see people clapping and cheering for her. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of our spiritual family. And the thing is, as much as I love my kids, it's the community that made that night as beautiful as it was. It was the togetherness and the joyous feeling of being a part of something together. Church, this is so important given the individualism of our age. Jesus was born into this world to bring salvation to the household of God, his spiritual family, not just a collection of individuals. He came to save a people. So did you know that when you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow the Son of David, was born in a manger, did you know that you get a brand new set of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and grandparents? Did you know that? And did you know that not a single one of those family members will miss out on any part of the blessedness of Christ's return And did you know that we will dance together, hair flying through the air, cheering each other on? I recognize that this doesn't eliminate the pain that many of you might be experiencing. This Advent season, pain related to loneliness. Grieving, you know, perhaps in some circumstances, the spiritual estate of earthly family members who don't profess to follow Jesus especially loved ones in that category who have already passed away. But at the same time, I want you to understand this morning that in Christ, you have a spiritual family. A family that we can and should enjoy now as we sacrificially serve and bless one another with the spirit of Christ-filled mutuality a family that will be fully reunited when Christ returns, despite the temporary separation catalyzed by our earthly deaths. And so we have so much hope, not just because Christ is coming back, which he is, but because of the wedding celebration he'll host when he does and because of the family reunion, and because of the dancing. Until then, we experience real pain. But even as we do, we will grieve like those who have real hope, which, by the way, is the rhythm of true Christianity. Christianity is unique in so many ways compared to other major religions and even secularism. It's very unique. The heart of the uniqueness is grace. Salvation predicated not on our merit, but on Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, dying for sinners. And in doing so, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But Christianity is also unique in that it gives, check this out, real reasons for real hope without promising earthly comforts, and yet the expected difficulties in this life for even the most faithful Jesus followers don't undermine the foundation for our future hope or cancel out the inherent goodness and beauty of following him now. And so accordingly, here's a second exhortation very briefly, verse 18. Can we please encourage one another with these words? Here's what we typically say to one another around the holidays when we're making small talk. You know how this goes. We ask each other about holiday plans, where we're going, etc. And then we say something like, listen, I hope you have a good time celebrating with your family. Right? You've said that how many times now? in the past few weeks. Praise God. That's a completely fine thing to say. It's a delightful means of wishing your friends well, your neighbors well, although, of course, complications can arise when you discover that someone's family situation is not all that great or that they don't really have family to celebrate with in the first place. But, and I'm not trying to be cute here at all, This is what followers of Jesus should prioritize saying to one another in the midst of Advent, and really all of the time. We should be saying to one another, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, we'll all be together, the full family of God. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, yes, uh, but I already know that, and honestly what you're recommending sounds a little bit uh, cheesy to me, a little bit uncomfortable. Okay, fine, but do you really know this? Do you really know this and believe this on a heart level? That Jesus is coming back. And not only is he coming back, when he returns, he's going to host a massive wedding celebration featuring the entire family of God Nobody will miss out. And I mean, if Paul, if Paul finds it necessary to tell his mentee Timothy to, quote, remember Jesus Christ, Second 2 Timothy 2.8, surely we need reminders too. Surely we need people to look us in the eyes and to tell us, Remember what's coming. Christ has come, and Christ will come again. And what a family reunion that will be. Sometimes we will say this with joyful smiles. Sometimes we will say this with tears in our eyes. But we must also say it, and tell it, and preach it to one another. I am beyond convinced that two of the most neglected spiritual practices of our day are the communal habits of spontaneously praying for one another. (coughs) Not just saying that you're going to pray later, but pray with them in person, pray on the phone. I'm convinced that two of the most neglected spiritual practices of our day are the communal habits of spontaneously praying for one another and spontaneously reminding one another of gospel promises? When was the last time you paused and you just said to a brother or sister in Christ, Christ is coming again. And when he does, it will be such a glorious family reunion. Might we, by God's grace, begin to reclaim those habits this Christmas. To reform the way that we spend time with one another as a household of God. May it be so. Amen.